are called to mind and therefore have hope. As of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, His compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will bring it to pass. Before we begin our study tonight, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together as believers to worship you, to study your word. Father, it is your word that illuminates our thinking, helps us to see things, see life as it truly is. Father, we pray that we would have the courage, the volition to honestly look into the mirror of Scripture and let it uh, explain to us the way things should be, the way, think, way we should think, and that we might have our thinking completely changed by the principles of your word. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand the things that we study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in James chapter 4. verse 11 and 12. James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer, that is, one who applies the law, the principles of doctrine, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge... Your neighbor. Now, as we have seen already in this passage, it's addressing the problem that plagued this particular congregation and many congregations, and it's a problem for a lot of believers, and that is sins of the tongue. Whenever you get into a certain number of tests, and we studied last time people testing and system testing and some other types of testing where individuals are involved, and it's easy to focus our uh, attention on the individuals who are seem to be generating the problems in our life, It's easy to try to solve the problem by thinking that by running them down or uh, telling stories about them, telling some situation in their life, making them seem less significant, belittling them. This happens in marriages. It happens in all kinds of situations in life, and it's one of the worst things we can do. You never hurt anyone by gossip, maligning, slandering, uh, repeating anything about them that assassinates their character. The only person you hurt in that process is yourself because all sin ultimately comes back to be destructive to our own souls and to fragment the soul. Now, one of the greatest ways in which we get into problems of the sins of the tongue is through the public lie. This is where you start broadcasting something that is uh, false about people. In a, in a public arena. So we'll start off and look at several points on the public lie. We began this last time, so we'll just review it. Point number one, the definition of the public lie. The public lie is the most malicious form of the sins of the tongue and embodies all of them. It includes gossip, maligning, judging, vilification, and revenge. The goal of the public lie is to spread information. Now, that information can be true. Sometimes we get the idea, well, it's really true. People 
need to know this so they can make honest, informed decisions. That's how we rationalize slander. But whether it's true or false information, if we are not involved in the solution or directly involved in the problem, then we are not to talk about it. We need to keep our mouth shut. No matter how much somebody has hurt you, no matter how much you feel a victim in certain circumstances, no matter how much somebody may have taken advantage of you, it never gives any of us the right to respond through sins of the tongue. We need to just keep our mouth shut. And as we'll see when we get into verse 12, we need to keep our mouth shut and we need to take it to the Supreme Court of Heaven. God is absolutely fair and He is the judge and He is the Father of all believers and He is the one who will respond in absolute fairness and will solve the problem for us. His justice will come to play and we'll see that when we get into verse 12. It is not for us to take the matter into our own hands. And you see this so many times in people's lives. They get in a situation, they're working for an employer, there's something happens at the job, something happens with in a relationship, something happens in a marriage, and they begin to talk about it. And by doing so, we think that somehow if we show how unfair and unjust this other person is, that that somehow justifies us. But all that does is put us in the position of Matthew 7, 1 and 2, which says, Do not judge, lest you be judged. And we get in a position where we have triple compound divine discipline. We start judging somebody else, and the Supreme Court of Heaven is going to come down on us because we have taken God's place. We have started to judge the situation and put ourselves in that role of the Supreme Court of Heaven. So, Scripture says, He who judges against a brother or judges his brother is speaking against the law. This is the same kind of thing that Eve did in the garden. You put your, elevate yourself up to a position where you know all the facts. You're the one who can make all the decisions, and so you start uh, spreading information. So, of course, in this case of false information, if you know it's false, it's definitely malicious and designed to destroy somebody. And, of course, that's going to be motivated by all of the uh, internal lust, approbation lust, power lust, are usually the most the, the lusts that are most closely associated with spreading the public lie. We can never build ourselves up by tearing somebody else down. And somehow we always get caught in some kind of situation where we think that somehow we can do that. That if I put myself in the right light by putting them in a dark light, then we are going to solve the problem. Point number two under the public lie, the public lie is always motivated by metal attitude sins such as bitterness, jealousy, anger, and hatred. It's always motivated by mental attitude sins such as bitterness, jealousy, anger, and hatred. Psalm 64.3 says, describing this, that they have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They have aimed bitter speech as their arrow, using gossip, as a weapon. Psalm 119.69 shows what underlies this. The arrogant have forged a lie against me. With all my heart, I will observe thy precepts. Those who engage in the public lie and slander are some of the most flawed people that you will ever run into in life. 
they have so yielded, turned over the sin nature control in their life that it is divorcing them from reality. They have become masters of the uh, arrogant skills, self-absorption, self-indulgence, self-justification, and self-deception. And that's really what happens when you get involved with sins of the tongue. Running down other people, we get involved in the course of self-justification. We try to justify ourselves by tearing somebody else down. So sins of the tongue uh, are motivated by the mental attitude sins of bitterness, jealousy, anger, and hatred. Point number three. The bitter soul is a contagious soul and pollutes others. The, contagious, the bitter soul is a contagious soul that pollutes others. This is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Let's turn over a minute. We're going to look at a couple of passages since uh, we don't have the projector working to look at the passages overhead. We'll have to turn to them. In this context, the writer of Hebrews, remember, in Hebrews chapter 12 is dealing with themes that are very close to the to James. He's dealing with perseverance in times of testing. He's talking about not growing weary He's in, in, in the struggle with sin. And then, in verse 14, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that is, to fall short like falling short of the glory of God in terms of sin. And this is done through the mental attitude sin of bitterness. And it's portrayed here like a plant. And just as you, it's a plant begins with a, with a small seed and then begins to grow and spreads out roots and then produce, produces a fruit eventually that's the same sort of image that this mental attitude, sin of bitterness, can indeed produce uh, many other problems. Verse 16, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. And so it goes back to the Old Testament episode between Esau and Jacob. And there it's emphasizing that the underlying problem here is a bitterness and a jealousy that manifested itself in the relationship between Esau and Jacob. And of course, the the problem doesn't stop there, does it? I mean, we're still dealing with the consequences of the animosity between Esau and Jacob some 4,000 years later. So just the sins of the tongue, when you let something out of your mouth, it, it may have consequences that go on for decades. So the bitter soul is contagious and pollutes others. Point number four. The worst form of the public lie takes place inside of a congregation. And the interesting thing is that we don't seem to deal with that problem in our congregation, which is fortunate, because in a congregation the size that we have, that can be devastating. And in sitting around talking to uh, pastors this last couple of days who are pastoring in some different churches and larger churches and have come into churches who have, where there are those churches, those congregations have existed for decades and there are deep-seated uh, cliques and factions within those, congreg- those congregations. 
I just thank God we don't have that kind of thing. I, I've been involved in congregations like that. And it's always indicative of the fact that you don't have people who are really positive to doctrine and applying doctrine in their life. They're involved in churchianity and not in learning the Scriptures. And I would rather have a church of 10 or 15 people who are positive to the Word and are there because they want to know the Scriptures than people who are there for other reasons. And that's one reason why, even though I enjoy music and I like a choir and I like a lot of other things that go on in some churches and that larger churches can get involved in, the sad thing is those things become distractions. Youth programs become distractions. I've seen people who make that their ministry, but, but the whole thing, the whole ministry becomes a distraction to their own growth in doctrine. Same thing happens with choirs. Some people who are very interested in music will go to a church simply because it ha- of the music program. And that becomes their whole reason for going to church and being involved in church. And it's no, no longer are they there because they want to know doctrine. And before long, what happens is you have a congregation and half the people are there because they want to know the truth and the other half are there for some other reason. And sooner or later, this fragmented congregation is going to manifest itself in some hideous ways. And some of the worst stories you ever hear about warfares that take place in congregations take place for that very reason. And that's why you have this kind of conflict in James. James has already said there's wars taking place inside this congregation. And it's because of the fact that they are not really positive. That's why the first thing that James dealt with back in James 1 was you need to be a quick to hear, a hearer of the word, learning and applying doctrine is the highest priority in the believer's life. It's not a music program. It's not a youth program. Not that these things are in and of themselves wrong, but so many things become a distraction to the spiritual life. Now, point four on the public lie. The worst form is inside the church because people get distracted from doctrine. This happened to Paul. Paul became a the object of the public lie in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 20 and 23. And the background has to do with how they were handling money. And the congregation in Corinth began to malign Paul by saying he didn't uh, maintain himself in the dignity of the ministry uh, by taking money from the congregation. Instead, he went out and he, he was a tent maker. And he got involved in a, in a, in a regular job to support himself and so they criticized him because he didn't give work full-time for the congregation, take money for the congregation. And, of course, when he did, they turned around and said, well, you're just in it for the money. You see, when you start dealing with people who are in negative volition, it doesn't matter what you do, it's wrong. And they're going to find something to shoot at you, shoot those arrows of bitterness and slander and gossip in order to malign the pastor and try to destroy his ministry. It happens not just with pastors, but it happens in business in many different situations. But particularly happens in churches, and that's the context of the passage. And one of the problems here is iconoclastic arrogance. See, an icon is an image. That's what the word means. And what happens is people sometimes get a, a false image of the pastor. And so they look at the pastor and they set him up on a pedestal. And they put the pastor up there and they 
hear a pastor teach the Word week in and week out, and they think that he can actually do everything he says they're supposed to do. And they forget that the pastor is growing just like everybody else. It's just that, that I happen to come face to face with the doctrines that are there when I'm in my study, and you come face to face with them here in a public arena, so you have to learn to maintain a little poise, maintain a poker face so other people don't realize that, that the Scriptures are really stomping all over your toes. And so people get the idea that the pastor really is super spiritual. And then what happens, and this is one reason many pastors, in fact, I know of one particular case where a pastor just about has decided he's not going to have any kind of social relationships with anybody in his congregation because any time he gets close to somebody and they start finding out who he is and they start seeing the flaws because down here every pastor has feet of clay. And sooner or later, you get somebody's going to get close to the pastor and discover that, that he has a sin nature, just like everybody else in the congregation. And they may not like his sin nature. They may see areas of weakness in the pastor that are just the opposite of their areas of weakness. And so now, the pastor has fallen off the pedestal. Boom. And so they sit back here and they say, How can that guy be a pastor? And they start shooting at him. You know what I saw him do? You know what I heard him say? Next thing you know, they're just running down the pastor because he's disappointing them. But the problem is, they were operating on arrogant skills. They were living on self-deception. And they had built a false view made up of false expectations. This is why when I came initially, my first Sunday, because I've seen this happen so much, I talked about the problem of false expectations. We have to expect of a pastor what scriptures expect of a pastor. And I've been in so many congregations, so many situations where people come in and they think, we've got a new pastor, he's going to do this and he's going to do that, and everybody's excited and that's good. But we can't automatically think that because we have a new pastor that the church is going to grow or this is going to happen or we're now going to have, whatever it is people say, Oh, now we're going to get a choir. Now we're going to get a youth director. Whatever their little pet peeve is, they think that the new pastor is going to bring that in. And so there's a lot of, a lot of false expectations. And the result is this is iconoclastic arrogance where you set the pastor up as an icon. And then as soon as you see that he has feet of clay, he's got flaws and faults and a sin nature just like everybody else. And he's just a growing, maturing believer like everyone else then you start taking pot shots at him and you become an iconoclast. See, an iconoclast is somebody who is breaking or shattering images. So you have iconoclastic arrogance. Point number five. Gossip, slander, the public lie are all motivated by the lust pattern of the sin nature. Whenever you are involved or you hear yourself getting involved in gossip, slander, any sins of the tongue, then the issue is what's going on in the sin nature, motivation, power lust, approbation lust, the lust to control others, revenge, motivation, vindictiveness. And beneath that is, the, is arrogance, the arrogant skill, self-absorption. I am so absorbed with my problems and my injustice and the fact that I'm a victim that I can't think of anything else 
but trying to tear down somebody else. So at the root of it is arrogance. Point number six, a life based on the destruction of others is self-destructive. A life based on the destruction of others is self-destructive. Isaiah 44.20 says, He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? That passage, ashes, relates to emptiness, that what he feeds on is not not nourishing. It's the opposite of doctrine. He's focusing on that which has been destroyed. And then in the next phrase, it says a deceived heart. This indicates the root problem, which is self-deception and arrogance. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself. You see, in self-deception or arrogance, we can't solve our problems. We can't correct things. It just makes things um, worse. And then the rhetorical question, is there not a lie in my right hand? And that is that my right hand, it characterizes me. Isn't my life characterized by a lie, self-deception? So we see the arrogant skills there, that you become self-absorbed, and this produces self-deception, which leads to being divorced from reality. So, and, and the more divorced we become from reality, the more neurotic and psychotic we become until we have complete soul fragmentation and a mental breakdown or all kinds of other things can take place. If you want to guarantee a life of misery for yourself, then get involved in character assassination, gossip, and slander. Point number seven. The archetype of all of these sins of the tongue is the great slanderer himself, the devil, who is known as Shatan in the Hebrew, Satan in English, Shatan, which means the accuser. And that is his role. He is the great slanderer. In John 8, Jesus refers to the devil as your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, and he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8:44. Whenever we get involved in slander, gossip, maligning, the public lie, then we are involved in carrying out the same kind of activity that Satan does. That is the relationship, your father, the devil. You're showing the same pattern of behavior. Point number eight, developing the idea of Satan. For Satan, the public lie exists for two ultimate purposes. Number one, to discredit Bible doctrine and those who communicate Bible doctrine. And secondly, to destroy the establishment leaders to discredit leaders, either in the realm of the church, those who are communicating doctrine, or in the realm of leadership in the nation. And we see an example where those two are joined together in Numbers chapter 16. Let's go look at the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 16. Now, the events in Numbers take place 
approximately a year after the Exodus. They've been out there in the desert now for about a year, and the congregation of the Israelites are more and more perturbed with Moses. See, the problem is that after they were delivered from slavery, they didn't have the doctrine in their soul to give them a capacity for freedom. This is what happens with a lot of believers who never learn any doctrine after they're saved. Because they don't have any doctrine, they can't apply anything. If you don't know anything, you can't apply it. If you don't know any doctrine, you can't apply it. And so all they've heard is the gospel, and they're freed from sin, according to Romans chapter 6. We're freed from slavery to sin, but we still possess a sin nature. But the only way we can keep from going back under the mastery of the sin nature is by applying doctrine. Now, Moses was teaching the Israelites in the wilderness, but they rejected it. They were on negative volition, and they were more concerned with their personal comfort, and they were more concerned with their personal security. This is always a problem with people who come out of slavery, is everything's been provided for them, and as soon as they get out in a position of true freedom, and where everything is dependent upon their own responsibility and cognizance for all of their decisions, that they can fail. So if you're going to have freedom, you're going to have the freedom to succeed. But if you have freedom to succeed, you're also going to have the freedom to fail. And most people want the freedom to succeed, but they don't want the freedom to fail. They want some kind of security net. They want a safety net. They want the government to come along and make sure that if I make a bad decision, that I'm not going to lose my house, I'm not going to lose my job, I'm not going to lose my car, I'm not going to end up out on the street. To the degree that you are kept from failure... To that same degree, you are limited from success. Now, that's an important principle that very few people understand. The more you have security given you by the government, the less freedom you have to succeed. The freedom to fail, when the freedom to fail is limited, so is the freedom to succeed. That's another way of putting it. Just to make sure, I want to make sure you understand that. That's the problem with our, our security-oriented society today. People are, uh, one of the things, uh, I was reading a, uh, a survey in the USA News this morning on the airplane. And there was a survey taken, and 65% of the people surveyed believed that it was the government's responsibility to guarantee health care. Where do we get that idea? That's socialism. That, that limits freedom. That destroys businesses because businesses are supposed to pay it. It raises the taxes. It, it, the more money that you, you give to the government, the less freedom you have. That's what the Founding Fathers recognized. They saw that taxation without... The reason they made an issue out of taxation without representation is they recognized that, that when you're working, you deserve the fruits of your labor. Now, they weren't denying the rights to taxation, but the more the government takes out of your paycheck, the less freedom you have. Because it takes money to do things. And the less money you have, the less you can do. And so the issue is you are to limit taxation, but that's going to limit security. All of a sudden now you're out there uh, and, and everything depends upon your decisions. And if you make bad investments and you make bad decisions, then ultimately you come to retirement and you don't have anything. Well, it's not the government's job to take care of us when we're old. It's our job. It's family's job. And the more you take the responsibility and put it on government, the, le- the more you take it away from the family, which violates all the principles of the divine institutions. 
and that ultimately leads to a fragmentation and destruction of a nation. So this is the problem that Moses is faced with, is that the Israelites are out there in the wilderness and they've rejected doctrine, and along with rejection of doctrine, they are rejecting his authority. And so they continue to find fault with Moses and they run him down and they gossip about him and they get involved in iconoclastic arrogance and they start promoting various propaganda and false things about Moses, saying that he's really not uh, qualified for the job, he makes bad decisions, he's always favoring his family, looks, he makes his brother Aaron, the number two guy, is the high priest. Uh, we can't really trust him. We need to have somebody who in power who has our interests at heart. In fact, maybe somebody who will take us back to Egypt so that we can have a better life. We enjoyed all the leeks and garlics in Egypt. We had good food. We had lots of seasoning. It wasn't like coming to Connecticut where nobody can find any good Mexican food. I want to go back to Texas and have Mexican food. It's that kind of reasoning. See, now I knew I'd get a smile out of everybody. I really enjoyed some good Mexican food when I was in California the other day. So they want to go back to the leeks and garlics of Egypt because their focus is not on where God is taking them and what God is doing in their life and the ministry that God has called the nation to in Exodus 19 to be the priest nation for all the nations in the world. They, instead of focusing on God's plan and purposes for Israel, they're just focused on their own personal comfort and security. And so in reaction to their personal discomfort, traveling around like uh, uh, Bedouins in the desert, they're taking it out on Moses and running him down. And in Numbers chapter 16, we see the rebellion of Korah. And there are several people involved in this rebellion. The uh, followers of Korah were Levites who were not in the main line for the high priesthood. And so there's jealousy at work here. There's approbation lust. They want to be recognized. They want to be put in a place of power. And the key movers and shakers in this rebellion are Dathan and Abiram. So they are getting involved in assassinating Moses. Now let's look at the, uh, the background, the first part of the chapter. Verse six, in verse 1, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram. These are the three leaders, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, sons of Eliab and On. Um, they took action, and they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel. So they've had a little conspiracy going on. And there's 250 leaders of the congregation now who rise up with them. They've been spreading and fomenting rebellion. Now remember, there's about 2.5 to 3 million Jews here. This is, a place, this is a size of, I don't know what the population of Connecticut is, but that's the size of Houston. I mean, that's a lot of people. No wonder Moses had problems with all those people. That's a lot of sin natures. Verse 3, They assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy. We're all right and you're wrong. We don't care if you do talk to God. We don't care if God has put you in a special position and you're a prophet and you're getting direct revelation from God. The congregation is really holy, and you're just running down. It's all your fault. You just don't respect us, and we've got a bad self-image. Whine, 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 cry, cry, cry. So they tried to justify themselves as being holy. We see Moses' reaction in verse 4. Moses heard this. He fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy. 
So you have the spread of the public lie, character assassination, slander of Moses, the division in the congregation, and how does Moses react? Does he respond in anger, jealousy, self-justification? No, he doesn't. He takes it to the supreme court of heaven. It's not my issue, it's God's issue. These aren't my people, they're God's people. God's going to solve the problem. Tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is His and who is holy. You're going to claim to be holy? You're going to claim to be following the Lord? Well, we're going to let the Lord decide who's really holy come tomorrow morning. And He will bring him near to Himself. Even the one whom He will choose, He will bring near to Himself. Do this. And He said, take censers for yourself. This is the brass bowls that they burnt incense in in the, in the uh, tabernacle. Take censers for yourself, Korah and all your company, put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You've gone far enough, you sons of Levi. Now, what's going on here is there are specific prescriptions about who is to come into the presence of the Lord and who is to burn incense in the presence of the Lord. Not just anybody can do this. And so they are operating on their own interpretation of Scripture at this point. The, the sons of Korah are. They have, they're in disobedience to all of the uh, prescriptions that God has given for obedience in the, temp, in the tabernacle. So Moses is very wise in the way he handles this because he knows that if they go in there offering, I always like the King James translation, offering strange fire, that if they go in there under false pretenses, violating the Mosaic Law, that God's holiness will deal with the situation. And we see the result a little later on. But first he's going to call in verse 12. Let's skip down to verse 12. Just hit the high points. He brings in Dathan and Abiram, and they won't come and talk to him. They knew that Moses' leadership would overwhelm them. They can't face him. They just want to hide behind the scenes and foment rebellion. This is usually what happens in some sort of conspiracy. And he calls for them. They won't come to him. We will not come up. Is it not enough? Listen to how they accuse him falsely. Is it not enough that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to die in the wilderness? Moses, you want to kill us. That's what you're all about. Notice how they've twisted everything. See, in carnality, the bad is called good and the good is called bad. God said, I'm going to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're saying, you brought us out of Egypt. It was, a land. It was wonderful. Slavery was wonderful. Who cares if they beat us? Who cares if we had to try to uh, build with bricks made without straw? Who cares if all of our, our sons were killed in a massive infanticide by the Pharaoh. We're going to forget all that. It was a wonderful place. So they twist and distort the truth. Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us inheritance in the fields and vineyards. You're a liar. You haven't fulfilled any any, um, of your promises. And would you put out the eyes... Of these men. In other words, all you want to do is to de- destroy us, and they're accusing Moses of failure. Verse 15. Now Moses became, becomes angry, and he goes to the Lord with his anger. He doesn't respond to them in anger. He appeals to the Supreme Court of Heaven. Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, 
And then he goes on and lays out his case before the Lord. And then we see the action of the Supreme Court of Heaven down in verse 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. So the Supreme Court of Heaven is going to spring into action. Verse 22, we see their response. They fell on their faces. So God, God, thou God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, wilt thou be angry with the entire congregation? So once again, you see Moses putting himself in the role of an intercessor. Don't kill all of them, just the guilty ones. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the congregation to get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Picture this. You have the encampment of Israel on the, out in the wilderness. Now everybody get away from the tents where Korah, Dathan, and Abiram dwell and their families. And you can just picture this. The drama of it. Everybody starts backing away. And what must their families have been thinking as these three men and all their families are standing there in front of the tent, their tents, waiting for the judgment of God? Verse 31. We'll just skip the conversation. It came about as Moses appealed to them, and then it came about as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground that was under them split open. A massive earthquake takes place. The earth shakes, the ground splits up, and their households, their tents, all of their possessions, the whole families are swallowed whole by the earthquake. So they, verse 33, so they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at the outcry, and they're afraid. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Now, this is the action of the Supreme Court of Heaven, which leads us to verse 12 of James 4. Let's turn back to James. Now, that's a unique situation. The, some of the things that happen in Numbers, Numbers is a transitional time in the history of Israel, I think. Some of the things that happen there, there in the wilderness dealing with the Exodus generation are analogous to what happens in the church in Acts. This is not normal procedure. There are many of the things that took place from the parting of the Red Sea, the deliverance of Israel, manna, the feeding of the Israelites, the quail, the water that came from the rock, these were not normal things that took place in the course of Israel's history. There are basically two other periods in Israel's history that are marked by, by miracles. This is some in the, in the prophets later on and with uh, Elisha and Elijah, but it's not normal. Same thing happens in the church age. That's the problem with the charismatics. They want to make the things that happen in that transitional period of Acts normal. And it's not normal for us to pray that God bring down fire upon somebody who's offended you. That is not how the Supreme Court of Heaven is going to operate today. In fact, judgment may not arrive until much later. But God will deal with it in His justice. 
James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is the one who is able to save, sozo, which means to deliver. And I take it here that it's a, this is a phrase in relation to salvation. Because he is said to be the one who is able to save. This is the verb. Uh, this is the infinitive form of sozo and the infinitive form of uh, apolumi, which means to to destroy destroy or to perish. Apolumi is the same word that's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His unique Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's that same word for perish. It's related to the same root for describing Judas as the son of perdition. The one God is referred to here is the one who is able to save Sozo and to destroy Apolumi. So this, I think, is speaking of the saving role and the ultimate judgment in relation to someone's eternal destiny. Since God is the one who judges in relation to ultimate destiny, He is able to judge on all other issues of life. And then James says, Who are you to judge your neighbor? To make decisions about whether they're spiritual, whether they're carnal, whether they're right, whether they're wrong, to judge their motives. Who are you to put yourself in that position. And that takes us to the doctrine of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Point number one. Supreme Court of Heaven is composed of all three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Remember in the Godhead, there are three persons, but they have the same essence. Three persons, one identical essence in the Trinity. Point number two, if you understand the, doc, the attributes of divine essence, then that explains the operation of the Supreme Court of Heaven. Let's review the essence box. God is sovereign. That means He is the ultimate ruler of the universe, and this gives Him the right to judge all the creatures. This goes back to the creator-creature distinction, because God is the creator and He is distinct from everything, including the universe, and we are creatures. He has the right to judge in the affairs of mankind. Secondly, we come to the issue of God's integrity. His integrity is made up of His perfect righteousness, His absolute justice, and His love. So when we look at His integrity... God's absolute righteousness establishes the standard by which He judges and evaluates the actions of mankind. Justice is the application of that standard, and love is the motivation and the initiation of God's justice. So it is never correct to set up His righteousness in opposition to His love. And you find people do that all the time. How can a loving God do that? And I always want to respond, well, how can a righteous God not do that? His righteousness, justice, and love work together in perfect harmony. There is divine integrity in the essence of God. Some passages of Scripture that emphasize this are Psalm 25, 8, which says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. It's interesting that because of God's righteousness, He teaches sinners. Interesting connection. 
It doesn't say good and upright is the Lord. The Lord is righteous, therefore He judges and condemns sinners. The emphasis is on the fact that in His grace, He teaches sinners in the way. So righteousness is not incompatible with divine love or divine mercy. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So whenever we are or think we are the objects of injustice or unfairness, then we are to take refuge in the character of God and the Supreme Court of Heaven. Then we come to the fact that God is eternal. Well, in His eternality, God has always known all the facts. Let's join His eternality with His omniscience. God knows everything. That means that when it comes to judging and evaluating, God knows all the facts because He's omniscient, and He has always known all the facts, so nothing surprises Him. When we encounter injustice or unfairness, or we're involved in in, uh, system testing or people testing, it's no surprise to God. He has provided everything we need to solve the problem, and He has already decided what the uh, judgment will be on the guilty parties. Then God is omnipotent. Because God is omnipotent or all-powerful, God is able to execute the sentence that the Supreme Court of Heaven pronounces. He is able to fulfill the sentence, and the only thing that might hinder a judgment is the actions of a believer that gets in the way. So here we have a believer, and he becomes the object of some sort of system testing or people testing some level of adversity, and he doesn't think it's fair. And so the sin nature kicks in, and rather than uh, responding by putting up the soul fortress and relying upon the ten stress busters to handle the adversity, he rejects that, and he's going to try to solve his problems on his own through some kind of human viewpoint technique, which is tantamount to sin nature control the soul. the people involved that he perceives have treated him unjustly. Now, if he had gone to the Supreme Court of Heaven, then, put a triangle here to represent the Trinity, then God would execute judgment on the guilty party. But what happens is, by getting involved in sins of the tongue, now the believer has put himself in the way, and now the believer needs to be judged for sins of the tongue and for gossip and slander and the public lie. And so the whole situation has become three, become three, has become three times worse than it was to begin with. Omnipotence means that God has the ability to execute His judgment on the offending party. Omnipresence means that God is fully present at every place in the universe all the time. Thus, the triune God is an eyewitness to every injustice, every crime, and all unfair treatment in our lives. God is there. He saw it all, and He knows all the facts. He understands all the motivations. (coughs) So we can rely exclusively upon Him. Sixth, God is veracity. Go back to God is sovereign. He's righteous, just, love, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. 
He is veracity or absolute truth. Therefore, his decisions are true and right. They are in complete conformity to his righteousness. And then God is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his decisions will not change because his standard doesn't change. In conclusion, we can say that divine justice is the operation of eternal God as the creator of all mankind, the sovereign of the universe, and He's in control of human history. So His decisions are always compatible with, human, with His knowledge and with His essence and His timing, and He doesn't operate necessarily on our timing. We want that person taken care of right now, and God says, well, I will, and my justice will be perfect, but it will be in perfect Timing. Point number four. The justice of God administers perfect divine laws and perfect divine decisions in perfect timing, and He always makes the penalty fit the crime. He always makes the penalty fit the crime, and we may not ever see how God has executed that justice on the person who has uh, treated us unfairly. Scripture says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And so it is not our decision. Point number five, Therefore we are to approach the Supreme Court of Heaven for redress of grievances when we are a victim of injustice, when we're an injured party in vilification, when we're the victim of some sort of crime or criminal action, we are to take it to the Lord and not take it out onto the streets in terms of spreading gossip or in grumbling and complaining. That's why Paul addresses that in Philippians chapter 2 where he says, Do all things without grumbling or complaining. And finally, point number seven, ultimately, final judgment is in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has been delegated ultimate responsibility for executing justice. In John 5.22, we read, for not even, Jesus said, for not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. And in John 5.27, Jesus said, and He the Father, or John comments, and He the Father gave Him, Jesus Christ, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. So the final point is that everything must be taken to the Supreme Court of Heaven, and it is God who evaluates everything. He is omniscient and omnipotent, and He is the one who will take care of the situation, and it is not our responsibility. Because when we do, we interfere, we get in the way, and then we too must be dealt with by the Supreme Court of Heaven. Now, we'll wrap up there tonight and come back next time and look at James 4.13. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the time to look at Your Scripture this evening. We pray that You would help us to understand these things, see how they apply to our lives, and, and recall these doctrines to our thinking when it's necessary to apply them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.